We're here. Ha. We can hear it. There we go. Hey, we have music. <laughs> I'm, I'm having a fun one. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, we are here once again in Belta Louder for the people in the back to discuss uh, class warfare in space. No war but class yeah. war in space. Space class war. Class space war. War space class. All of the things simultaneously. Yep. Uh, it's with the, me it's today. the 24th century, and uh, <laughs> class divisions still exist, despite the promise of a Star Trek future. Uh, that in this universe did not come to pass. So uh, no, it did not. we're still doing the <laughs> still doing the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie versus the petite bourgeoisie. You know, the aristocracy is mixed in there somewhere. It's a it's a clusterfuck at class struggle. Yeah, it really is. Uh, with me today, I've got Bushido Squirrel and Logan. Hello, uh, Logan. For some reason, I am just blanking on your last name. Uh, rap. It doesn't... Rap. Logan Rap. There we go. I... There's been a lot of stuff that we've been doing for the last few minutes, getting all this stuff queued up, so I apologize profusely, Logan. Uh, anyway, here we are. We are going to be talking about the first two episodes of the sci-fi series, The Expanse, uh, and talking about the way that class strife and just political analysis from the left, uh, all all factors into this whole thing. It's uh, it, it's it's good, folks. It is definitely class warfare in space. Um, and for and we, for those of you following along at home, these are going to be episodes one and two, Dulcinea and the Big Empty. And the Big Empty is going to be kind of a a common theme throughout this space-faring adventure uh, that we're going to be going on. Uh, so if you do want to like. We're going to be showing some clips. We're going to be showing some screen caps. Definitely a good time to, like, just go and re-binge all of The Expanse, which, like... Oh, yeah. Since our last episode, I kind of watched all the way through to, like, the end of season three because I have a lot of time to sit around as a video editor and have white noise on. And I'm just going to binge it again because it's just really effing good. And so you should do that, too. Uh, I, I'm doing the same thing, uh, uh, to be completely honest. It's, it's what I, I put on in the background when I'm doing my workouts. Logan? I am definitely walking through it as well. Of course, though, my job is to try to get into television, so I do have to watch something other than the same show over and over again. Why? That's all television and movies are is remaking what was there before. Like, just like Gilligan's Island, but in space. There you go. I just sold your next pilot. You're good to go. Thanks. I'll get on it, right on it with ABC. No. <laughs> all right, but... Uh, because we could sit here and banter all day about this. Let's actually hop into setting the stage here and like setting the table, as it were, for uh, what's going on. So we're we're kind of going in media race here as far as the the um, uh, the universe and the conflict and everything happens. The main characters that we're going to be paying attention to are uh, James Holden and the crew above the uh, uh, aboard the Ca the Canterbury, which is an ice hauling vessel. We're also going to be out in series uh, with. Uh, Oh my god, how am I forgetting his name? Um, Whoa, hold on. Hold on. Holy I, hit the, I hit the wrong button. How am I forgetting the Bingo. detective's name? What uh, is Miller. Right? Josephus Miller. Miller. Josephus, Josephus Miller. Josephus Miller, who is going to be investigating some crimes and going on on, a, on Ceres, which is a sort of like planetary body, like a dwarf planet uh, where a lot of people live. And then uh, Christian Avasarala, who is a very high-ranking uh, United Nations cabinet secretary who controls a lot of the like, kind of insider politics. But so we're going to start off by looking at uh, what's happening here on the Canterbury, because the Canterbury is a very important ship uh, in the Expanse universe, because it takes water from Saturn back to Ceres to provide water for the rest of the belt. Because, like... yes. You know, frozen bodies floating through space, they do have a lot of frozen water and stuff on them to an extent, but they also need that water shipped in, purified, sent around. It's like the extractive capitalism that we have here with like our bottled, bottled water companies, uh, but on steroids, because we're not just like, you know, pulling water out of an aquifer and slamming it into like some plastic bottles and selling it for 500% of what it's worth. No, 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 no. We're having to do spacewalks with giant sky cranes to grab chunks of ice to melt it down and then send it throughout the belt. So, Logan, I'm actually going to turn it to you to talk a little bit of, like, the economics and the scarcity of what's going on. Because even though we're mining asteroids and supposedly should be in a surplus economy, uh, we're really not in this universe. 
No, I mean, on Earth especially, well, and, and along with Mars, but on Earth we know that there was a global climate catastrophe, and uh, with the explosion of their population over the years, it's pretty clear to us, at least as far as through context cues and um, just from the way that, you know, Earthers kind of describe their own existence, you get the feeling very quickly that Earth does not have a lot of resources anymore. Yeah. And, and the resources that it does have are mainly to be kept there. Like the Earth isn't exporting a lot. Even the food that is feeding the people on the planet Earth, that's imported. It's not really coming from Earth. And I think one of the only societies we see in this universe that's really generating its own resources to an extent is going to be Mars. So, Chris, I know Mars doesn't play like a huge bit in these first couple episodes, but I was hoping you could set the stage as far as like where Mars fits into this like cosmic supply chain that we're setting up here. Sure. Well, so what we do know from later in this uh, in this season uh, and, and in the subsequent seasons, Mars basically acts as like the space police. Uh, they, they, they literally do. They are filling the role of, of uh, space Rome. cops. They're space cops. They're 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 the Imperial Guard uh, running around, maintaining the, the trade routes and making sure that everything is OK, dealing with space pirates um, which is a thing, uh, and making sure that the, the food supplies are kept open, that the trade routes are, are safe. Uh, that's their main role in this. Like, Mars produces a bunch of food on planet, but it's all basically like, it's all uh, either tank-raised uh, meat products or uh, you know, plant-based, soy-based, um, or mushrooms. Like lots, yeah. you hear a lot of, a lot of people talking uh, eloquently about uh, the joys of eating mushrooms, which I, as a mushroom fanatic, uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to this dystopian space future where all you get is mushrooms. Um, very, but very it, low impact to grow, very high payoff nutritionally. Absolutely, but the uh, I mean, it's 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 one of the things that they talk about at least in series is that you you know when you die you become mushroom food like that's a thing. Um, so it's it's a very you know closed loop system to try to maintain all of this. Uh, but the 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 main thing with Mars is that there's there's actually a Mars and Luna controlled station on Ganymede, which is the the breadbasket of the of the entire system, frankly. Uh, and the reason why it exists as a system or as the breadbasket is because they have a, a bunch of orbital mirrors that are reflecting the sunlight down into it. So all of the various bodies play into this, um, but Earth is definitely not like a net exporter of food. And even if it were capable of producing a net export of food, the fact that it costs so much energy to get it up and into orbit would make it um, economically not viable to do so versus yeah. growing plants in zero G or, and close to zero G um, on, uh, on Ganymede, uh, an, uh, yeah. on a moon orbiting around uh, Jupiter. It does allow you to really uh, take advantage of the, 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 the physics of the gravity wells. Um, you'll also so, notice, like in our background here, we've got stuff. That's plants yeah. growing in in zero g around a central light source, which uh, is useful for season three. Uh. Yeah, but but hold on before we before we actually hop into the plot here, Chris. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, keep it on you for a second. Yeah, yeah. sure. You you being a math doing person did a little <laughs> bit of math here to sort of set the stage for like. You know, so mm. we the Canterbury is basically a big ice hauling ship. It goes from yes. Ceres out to Saturn. Yes. Are we talking like that's a six-hour commute? That's like a five-year commute? Like how much well, time are they spending on each one of these ice hauling trips? So we, we talked about this earlier. And from a realistic physics perspective of it, there's absolutely no way that you're going to be able to have engines uh, accelerating at like one one time earth gravity to to go out and do this so it, it it doesn't quite all match up but if you are doing something like i mean actually i can do the really quick calculation of let's say i don't know 60 percent uh earth if you're if your acceleration is roughly 60 percent earth gravity which is i believe roughly what you've got with mars um you it would take you at the shortest period of time assuming that you do you accelerate the full way out you stop accelerating, you turn yourself around, you put your engines the other direction, and you decelerate in. 
so that you're you're getting in there. The the shortest possible distance it's it's roughly a, a billion kilometers is the closest mm. that Saturn and Ceres ever get. And that sounds accelerating hard. it's 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 far. A billion kilometers is is not a is not a quick distance. So accelerating so wait, at seventy percent of so Earth gravity. On, to, uh, to, to to kind of like uh put this in a little bit more context. How far <laughs> is it from the Earth how far is it from the Earth to the Sun? And how far, like, how many Earths to the sun can you fit in the, the distance between Ceres and Saturn? That is, uh, so the distance between the Earth and the sun is one astronomical unit, one AU. And the distance between uh, the shortest av- uh, shortest mean and distance. That's, sorry, sorry. For, for, for those of you out there, one AU is about 90 million miles, which is about uh, 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 160 kilometers. Uh, 160 million kilometers something like that it's 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 i don't remember the conversions off the top of my head yeah this is mean for you to do this but to so me. this uh, but so this but is but this is about a hundred <laughs> times distant from the the sun to the to the earth like from it's, Ceres to saturn is a hundred times the earth to the sun. no 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 from 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 the earth to the sun is one au from Ceres to saturn the shortest average the shortest mean distance is 6.8 au so, okay. for instance, okay. if it takes eight minutes for light to get from the sun to the Earth, it would take about an hour at the shortest distance. If you were to shoot a laser from Ceres straight at Saturn, it would take an hour for it to get there, which means that any kind okay. of the shortest possible communications delay is one hour. But that these are two bodies that are orbiting in various you know positions around the sun, which means that they get very far apart at certain points in time. Um, and sometimes the sun is between them, so you can't like, you can't get the signal necessarily through that. Um, but the point is that the, it's it's not a short distance. So for 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 getting back to what was going on, like if you're accelerating at something like seventy percent of Earth gravity, which would be a pretty monstrous load for somebody who grew up in zero g, um, and you did it the entire time, the fastest you could possibly get there would be in about two hundred and forty hours. So the quickest you could possibly get there is in ten days. Yeah. And it's going to take longer than that on average. And that's like, that's even at 70% of 1G of acceleration. So this is, we're talking like weeks to months of travel, along with yeah. all of the time that you spend at Saturn collecting uh, the ice in order to bring that back to Ceres. But so, so when, we're, when we're talking about these trips and talking about the people who are working on these yeah. ships and what that looks like, what we're talking about is really almost going back to the, the seafaring days where you yes. lived with this crew for like months at a time. Like this basically became your family. You Very were with so. these people for like 90 days to go out, get some ice, mine that ice, set it all up, and then like haul it back to the nearest trade port. So the, the people that you live and work with, like, you're going to be pretty close to them. This isn't like go into your office job and then go home to your family. <laughs> you're literally living with your coworkers more than you see your family. And so in that context, we're going to jump right in uh, to what goes on on this, this sort of like ice hauling because that sounds like a very, I don't know, like clean and easy job. Like we're going to grab some ice from clean Ceres. Clean and pure? Or, sorry. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to grab some ice from Saturn, and then we're going to take it back to Ceres, and this is all going to be pretty easy. But is that the way this goes? Or is this more like heavy industrial and dangerous work? It is definitely that second <laughs> one. We're just going to go out on a limb here. Well, get it, limb. Uh, I've actually, yeah. we've got a, yeah, we've got a, a, a photo there. Uh as they're as they're bringing in one of the big blocks of ice, you know something happens. The ice cracks. Gigantic, like car-sized pieces of ice slam into the workers out there, costing one guy his arm. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off there, Logan. You can you can. No, keep it's going absolutely on the, the fine because the the thing that strikes me about uh, just the way that the uh, the the workers have responded to what should be an absolutely agonizing and debilitating injury is just go, ah, it happens. And you just immediately get a sense of what the working conditions are when losing a limb is basically expected. And uh, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Sucks to be you, you know, hope you get that yeah. prosthetic. And, well, and, and that's that's one of the things that they they talk about is you know if this happened on Earth, they'd be able to regrow the arm. Like they've got some crazy techno gel that's just gonna regrow your arm. But when you're out here on the fringes of the solar system, you're kind of hoping that the company opts to pay for your arm because like 
this is a very privatized system, right? Like these people are basically in a big floating company town and the company decides like, how much are we going to rebuild your body? Yeah. And, uh, the answer is, uh, the amount we're going to spend is the minimum amount we need to spend to get you back out there, soldier. So, uh, the one thing that that I also found very interesting was, if I recall correctly, the the worker is um, himself like a, a belter, like a, a native belter, and um, he was just like, "I do not want that Earther tech. Do not put that shit on me. I I'm going to have a belter prosthetic. I like it just the way it is. Lousy." And that's just kind of that pride that they have in in their home and in their own technology, even though they know damn well it's not as fancy as Mars or Earth tech. All right. Hey, Chris, let's uh, yeah. let's cue up that speech from the uh, the OPA. Uh, I'll call him the OPA shit stirrer, who's there to <laughs> rally the people on Sirius Station and tour. Give them the class consciousness that that Earthers like me don't fucking want them to have. Correct. That is, yeah, we we Martians also don't want them to have it, but uh, there he makes some good points. Not gonna lie. For those the of you listening, we're watching was some space footage. in ice. Enough water for a thousand generations until Earth and Mars stripped it away for themselves. This station became the most vital port in the belt. But the immense wealth and resources that flow through our gates were never meant for us. This is such an oft-repeated theme and unloading precious Weird. We fixed pipes and filters keep this living and breathing. We built his got the and Beverly suffer. Hills of series there. Without hope, <laughs> without end. And for what? One day it's Mars the governor lives, will use folks. its might to wrest control of series from Earth. And Earth will go to war to take it back. It's all the same to us. No matter who controls series, This transition is very smooth. To them, we will always be slaves. That's all we are to the Earthers and Dusters. Not gonna lie, um, I have uh, megaphone envy. I would love this megaphone that you just like strapped to your neck. Human anymore. So the next time you look in the mirror, say the word slave. Every time we demand to be heard, they hold back our water, aqua ventilada, ration our air, and a loose ventilada until we crawl back into our holes in bubble ventilada and do as we are told. There we go. Water rationing is in effect. That's what that says on the screen yeah. in those last couple of frames. And air rationing. That's another thing that yes. we haven't really talked too much about is air does not naturally exist on series. There's not breathable oxygen and environment there. That all has to be built by humanity. And and the Earth corporations have really taken it upon themselves to build this infrastructure and then essentially charge the belters who are born there to live and survive there. And... From the Earth Corps' perspective, there's a lot of money and time and investment and manpower and centuries of work that has gone into making this happen. You know, Ceres was not built in a day, as it were. Ceres took several, <laughs> several centuries to get to the point where it is now, or a about a century to get where it is now. Generations, And yeah. the people, yeah, and the people that live on Ceres owe a debt to the planet Earth for providing those initial resources, for, for providing the initial ingenuity and engineering technology that allowed these places to even begin to exist because this is completely inhospitable to human life. I mean, isn't it the most capitalist thing for people to have a debt by the very virtue of being born? I mean, just just being born. Oh, hey, you're in debt. <laughs> Intragenerational indentured servitude. What's what's the problem with this? Like, this is just a thing that happens. But so it's, it's into this sort of like class um, <laughs> conflict that uh, Josias uh, uh, Miller, Josephus, thank you, Josephus Miller, our detective, enters the scene. And we don't want to go like, we're not going to go plot point by plot point, but what we do want to pull in is he is sent on a mission to find a wealthy young woman from a very prominent, like perhaps the wealthiest family on the planet Earth, 
who has gone missing in the belt. And so he is sent on this sort of like kidnap job, as it, as it were, to go find where this young woman disappeared. While that is happening, the cant is out there beginning to uh, mine for ice and to get stuff that they can pull back to series. And now Chris has pulled up a very nice image that shows the Earth and Luna and shows that Luna is in fact itself colonized, that it's essentially just an island outside of Earth. Like there are probably some people who are born on Luna, but Luna is more of like a colony or a stopover. Like most people are born on Earth and then they'll they'll do some work on Luna. It's a place where you go from like, you'll shuttle your way. Like, you know, when, you, when you're like doing a transatlantic flight and you like, fly from SFO down to LAX, and then from LAX, you take that big-ass jumbo jet all the way over to Dubai in absolute comfort. That's the way that uh, that Luna operates. You have a little hop-up shuttle that takes you from the Earth up to Luna, and then Luna takes you out to Mars, to the belt, to wherever you're going that's farther away, because it's easier for a big ship to move away from Luna than it is for that big ship to move away from Earth. But so Julie Mao is the young woman who is missing. Her father apparently owns one of the biggest corporations in the entire system. Trillions and trillions of dollars worth of valuation there. And so Josephus Miller is now going to go find her. But where she went and how she got there is going to be a major plot point. So we don't want to give that all away here. But what we do want to point out is that that begins to intersect with the life of the people on the camp, specifically James Holden. Because as the Canterbury is out there beginning its transit back to Ceres to deliver this water, they get um, a distress call. And now I'm going to turn it over to you, Logan, to explain like why they would have to answer this distress call. Why could why they couldn't just be like, you know what, fuck those people. We're moving on with our lives. We owe them nothing. There are some very interesting laws that apply out here in the Big Empty. Yeah, I mean it. From my recollection, they're obligated to answer if they genuinely believe that there are people on the ship. Um, but obviously, they have hesitance to go. Number one, it's uh, going to completely screw over their time bonus, which is uh, interesting where the company would be upset with them if they did not fulfill their legal obligations but also in fulfilling their legal obligations, they have to give up their bonus. It's really convenient the way that that works. And uh, so the reason why they don't want to answer these distress calls is because quite often pirates use them to lure them in and they d would like to not be dead. And <laughs> so, and, and then, you know, uh, but the reason why that they do this um, and why, you know, like people like Holden, which we'll come to find later, you know, has feels an obligation to do it is because what if you're the one that's stranded out there? Um, and so it, it's definitely kind of a uh, we're all doing this because this is how we all take care of our bottom line. So if company A has to help out company B, on a long enough timeline, Company B is going to be helping out Company A, and everyone's bottom line is taken care of. And there is, I think, a base humanity that enters into it in the same way that, like, when you're out on the open ocean, if you get a distress call and you're the closest ship capable of responding, you are legally obligated to do that. There is a basic level of no one else is going to be able to help you out here. Like, there are no base other roving— Yeah, it's— as, as the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy said, it's really, really big. You just wouldn't believe how unbelievably huge it is. It is really, 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 really big. And humanity is the only game in town when it comes to, like, intrasolar system life. So if you are stuck out there, if you're on the float, as it were, another ship is going to have to come save you because you're not going to wash up on a shore. Like, if you're on the planet Earth and you're stuck out in the Pacific, eventually you'll probably get run into some land. You know, you'll hit some sandy beaches. Out in the Big Empty, you might just drift off until forever because, as Chris was pointing out earlier, we're talking about billions of miles between astrological bodies. Just absolutely insane uh, spans of time and distance that we're having to travel. Now, as the, the crew of the Canterbury is like making their way back and they intercept this distress call, there is some interpolitical um, uh, jockeying going on because Earthers like myself are very skeptical of the Belters. Like the working class is always trying to pull a fast one on us. They're always trying to get out from underneath the boot where we need them for profitable enterprise. So let's talk about 
what happens to a belter who gets caught by Earth authorities? Like, what happens if you're caught really breaking the law or really pushing for belter uh, independence? Bad things. <laughs> Lots of bad things. <laughs> yeah, that's putting it lightly. I mean, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, with the OPA in particular, because, you know, the moment that the belters started banding together and the moment the working class started getting organized, they were immediately branded terrorists. So naturally, they uh, get taken to the worst place they could possibly be taken to, which is Earth, because they can't handle the gravity. And, you know, when you, you can see it on the screen, that's what it is like for a belter who's lived their life in zero G for, you know, generations. This is what the evolution of their bodies has resulted in. So and this they're... Is, go ahead. This is something that comes across better in the book than it does on the TV show, really. Like, in the book, there's a much better description of the fact that Belter's bodies are lankier. They're less robust than Earther bodies. Like, an Earther body is almost like a dwarf, and a Belter body is almost like an elf if you're so dungeons and dragons inclined as i am but because you're growing up in zero gravity your muscles are a lot weaker your bones are a lot thinner they can't handle as much weight your lungs don't have the same capacity so we see these kind of like evolutionary tendencies working against belters when they're brought back to literally the cradle of humanity and the last thing you want christian avasarala to know is that you have a weakness because she <laughs> will exploit it just and, and we'll not feel bad about it. And it's very interesting, you know, the in the first, you know, scene or whatever that you see her in for like 30 seconds, you see her as just being a sweet grandma and being a genuinely sweet, warm yeah. person and then immediately transition into, oh, I'm torturing a person. Yeah, oh, I'm, yeah, going yeah. To a, I'm going to a black site in the Hamptons, by the way, the black yeah, site I is in the that. Hamptons. Yeah, it's wild. I, it, it goes dark very fast. Yeah, but let's and, uh, let's play that clip real quick, Chris. Sure. Hamptons Island, New York. You've been linked to a radical faction of the OPA. Are you just a courier? Though, to be fair, like, after the climate oh, no, collapse, it's that. probably not quite as Ten nice hours. of a place to live. I'm sorry the gravity of a real planet hurts, but it's appropriate. You wish to hurt Earth. The Earth that is now crushing your weak, belter lungs and your fragile belter bones. All you have to do to make it stop is talk. You're an OPA terrorist. You were carrying contraband stealth technology. What was it for? A whisper will do. If that's all you can manage. Hey. Give him another ten hours. If he survives, call me. Now, as yeah. we mentioned before, Earth may have the like population and the, the sort of established advantage because obviously humanity has been on Earth longer than we've been anywhere else. But Mars has a bit of a technological advantage. So, Chris, there's a mention of stealth tech there. Maybe you can explain to us what this stealth tech is and why that would piss Christian Avasarala off so much. Well, so that's that's actually one of those things that um, very much like um, uh, unobtainium, you know, as as the the science fiction plot devices goes, uh, or vibranium from the the Marvel universe, right? Stealth tech in the Expanse basically allows for ships or other objects to be cloaked from the typical uh, spotting mechanisms that, that exist. So the reason why the Earth, for instance, has spotter satellites up there, and so does Mars, um, is because you're worried about incoming objects. Uh, we currently 
do we, we are in the process of doing this right now, but we literally, the only, the only spotting technology we have are optical satellites. So we actually use like the, the, uh, the observatory uh, on the stolen land on top of Mauna Kea as a mechanism for basically doing like time-lapse uh, photography of the night sky to look to see where things are at. And then the, the astronomers go out there and they are able to then plot where all of these uh, near-Earth objects are at and what their trajectories look like. So you're able to then determine whether or not these things are going to be coming at Earth and potentially, you know, trying to make us go the way of the dinosaurs is, is, the, is a concern. But in the Expanse universe, it's, it's, it's graduated well beyond that. It's very much in the same lines of what you saw in um, Starship Troopers, for instance, right? In Starship Troopers, they have an entire physical ring constructed around the planet uh, as a gigantic, incredibly huge space station that would take an incredible amount of resources. But man, that movie is fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Also, but also so we're a saying... worthy classic critique. But the point is, with this, yeah. like you've got you've got your spotter satellites, and you have your railgun satellite, like railgun orbital platforms, and they exist to basically handle anything that is like incoming to Earth, toward Earth, or toward any of the uh, orbital things around Earth. Because honestly, if any small enough meteorite comes through at 17,000 miles per hour relative velocity it could easily wipe out the space station. The reason why the, the International Space Station right now doesn't get wiped out is because it's low enough down that most things aren't going to come in and hit it. But if you have enough objects floating out there in space, especially in the space between the Earth and the Moon, you're, you've got to worry about those potential stray pieces of debris or stray asteroids or weapons coming in. So you use stealth tech, um, potentially, if you wanted to do to mask something like a first strike weapon, which is what the main fear of the Earthers is, is that Mars is developing stealth tech in order to be able to launch their uh, planet-busting nukes at the Earth and cloaking them in such a way that the that Earth is not able to de detect them while they are en route. Uh, in theory, the same thing can be applied to ships, which would make them impossible to detect using radar, using lidar, using optical like. It all of the things it's it's meant to mask uh, the the object that it is protecting from being able to be picked up on the sensors that you have available to you at the time. So that's why. And it's it's one of those things where the scale of what we're talking about when we're like talking about space and the big empty is even a massive capital ship. Even some of the larger ships will be introduced in the to in the next couple of episodes are very easy to hide when you have billions and billions of cubic miles you can hide them and ships are very small things compared to planets compared to asteroids oh, yeah. so if this is a real problem that we have not just sp spotting our friends but also spotting people who might potentially want to hurt us but so into this like cauldron of mars earth conflict where there is a mutually assured destruction sort of thing coming on like yeah maybe mars can get off those first couple of like first strike shots, but Earth also has strike back capabilities and Earth has a bigger Navy. Earth has more ships that can punch harder, even if even if Mars has like a younger, more agile, more nimble Navy. But at the same time, you have the belt mixed into all of this, where there are people who are dependent on the stability of Earth and Mars to provide the economic engine to allow them to exist and to allow those corporations to go out there and do that thing. So uh, just to sort of recap, the, the cant is now on a mission to check out this ship that has sent out a distress call. And Holden, uh, Amos Burton, uh, Alex Kamal, and uh, Naomi Nagata are dispatched, along with a medic, are dispatched to go check this ship out. And what they find is, is basically... Shed. <laughs> yes. thank Shed. you. What, what they find basically is a ship that is set up as pirate bait. It is a dead ship with a Martian transponder on it, sending out a distress call, asking for help, but there's nobody left on the ship. So they quickly make their way back to their shuttle and try and get back to the Canterbury, just in time for a stealth ship that no one has ever seen, a design that no one has ever seen before, to come out of nowhere and nuke the Cant. And let's uh, let's go ahead and show that, that uh, photo real quick. Boop. Yep, there we go. Nuclear torpedo to the largest ice hauler in the solar system, destroying the ability to deliver water to Ceres, which is going to piss off a lot of belters, blowing up an Earth Corp ship, which is going to piss off a lot of Earthers, in a stealth tech ship that might be Martian, which is going to piss off a lot of Martians and a lot of Earthers. So let's talk about what uh, Josephus Miller is up to uh, 
on series as this is going on because water is a very heavy part of like his storyline in this too like we now have a group of people who are stranded in space they're going to try and get some help but we're going to be entering into like how they get some help later but i want to focus on series and the human drama that's going on with josephus miller so uh, tell me a little bit about uh what he's looking at in terms of water and stuff. And I think, Chris, you've got a couple of clips to pull up that shows, like, what the oh. water situation on Ceres looks like. Yeah, let me let me uh, cue those up. But before we do that, um, I actually think it would be worth talking briefly about the uh, what's the status of, um, shall we say, lawlessness on Ceres? Oh, yeah, uh, this is a very good point. And this is sort of like the Earther dream. Uh, yeah, the way that so, this, this is phrased is exactly what we're looking for in the belt. Yeah, exactly. So let me give me one moment here. I need to turn this on, turn that off, and switch it over. Bing. Okay, I'm gonna ask you one more time. <clears throat> Stop grinning like an idiot and give me your real name. I promise you things will not go well for you if you do not. Oh, Jesus. You did her. Miller, hey! If I want his ass kicked, I'll do it myself. I know who you are. I'll find you. I'll find you. I, I love mustache fans. <laughs> no laws on series, just cops. That is the corporate dream. That is the dream of every company town. Very much so. Yeah, yeah, it, I, it, it's wild. Company policy is law. That is basically uh, what puts Jeff Bezos to sleep every night. Just <laughs> the thought of one day, one day. And well, and like, like you were talking about last week, Nevada is moving to allow company towns to happen again. Mm -hmm. But this is that concept on steroids because places like Ceres are so far removed from Earth, it would take you weeks and weeks and weeks to get out there. Like if a crime happens and you need to send out a second investigatory force, that's going to take a hell of a long time to get those people out there. There is – the law is more of a concept out there. There is more um, – what really rules the day is the, the boots on the ground. So one, yeah. one of the th scenes that we were going to talk about is um, the so actually in, in episode one, there's not that much going on with uh, with Miller when it comes to the water situation. Uh, that's all pretty much in, uh, in that, I was that was our two. that was our cue to move on to, to episode. Oh, two. We want to talk oh, about we want to talk about uh, don't steal the stay away from the aqua. Yeah, give me give me uh, give me a moment to. Oh, boy, it's a different resolution. Uh -oh. to this we all we all this, disappeared. Yeah, give me. Oh, that's super fun. Everything is uh, getting cropped bizarrely. I apologize. Uh, let me find that uh, that clip because that starts at about 28 minutes and 15 seconds in. Uh, bo -bo 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 I can do this. I promise. I'm definitely You're a professional. 100%. Uh, let's, it's actually a little bit different timestamps here versus... But hey, hey, Logan, while, while we're working this out, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, like, who are the cops on series? Are these, like, cops in the way we think about them as cops, or, like, what kind of cops are we talking about here? Because there's a lot of different flavors of cops. I mean, really, it almost feels like they're closer to, like, insurance people with guns like the whole idea is that they are they're all about handling liability that is the one thing that they are mostly focused on when it comes to quote unquote keeping the peace is yeah. that the peace is only in so far that it is useful to keep the company from losing money and yeah. it's it's not about law at all it's it's only about order and it's only about maximizing profit. It's they're they're definitely more like Pinkertons, right? Their their star so. helix is the name of the company they work for. They're they're definitely given a corporate charter. They're not sworn officers under the law. They're enforcers of corporate policy, which is what the law is out there. Like there are there are things about charters of human rights and bodily autonomy and stuff like that and like some very pretty words that that talk about the rights that you as a as a human have, but that's not the way that the law is written and enforced out on a place like Ceres. You are basically the citizen of a corporation, and you're basically more like property and more like an employee, no matter what it is that you do in this world, than you are a free human being. Now, that's assuming you're not like 
an Earther, like Miller's partner, who came from Earth, to kind of like work in the backwaters of the solar system and to like do good in one of the shittier parts of the system and like bring order to the chaos. The order brought to the chaos here is very much the corporate order, very much the order of making a buck. Absolutely. Um, all right, so I've got a clip, the first one queued up to talk about how uh, Miller is not enjoying the water situation. So we'll play that first. That's got to be so frustrating. Yep. They're trying to thirst us out. Who's that? Earth, Mars. The water shipment's not late. Go back. They're holding it back. Seem pretty sure about that. Water means life. One shipment late, you got protests. Two shipments late, you got dead people in the street. And it's gonna get worse. Mark my words. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much what's going on there. Uh, talk while I queue up the next one. <laughs> ah. <laughs> no, but like water is, is regulated almost, it's down to the ounce. Like your water, even for bathing, for brushing your teeth, all of that is strictly, strictly enforced. Well, and it really uh, implies heavily as far as how little water these shipments actually bring in. It is basically we are going to give you just enough water to keep going until the next shipment. And so then, hey, if, uh, you know, those workers start thinking things, we can keep those uh, rations away until the, uh, the regular people turn on the workers. Because the, the whole idea is we want to take this water away so that you actually blame the OPA for those problems when we are actually the ones preventing you from getting the water that you need. Yeah. And it's it's something that we see weaponized time and time again, the scarcity of resources, despite the fact that we live in an abundant society, the fact that people are, are forced to make do with less based on their station. And Chris, I think you've got a good clip here that illustrates even on series, not everyone lives this very rationed lifestyle people there are definitely classes and a class stratum within series 100 oh, percent uh so this is this is where uh miller uh detective miller is uh in the midst of that uh the the kidnapping job uh and he is investigating the apartment of uh juliet andromeda mao to uh figure out what might have happened and uh there's there's a a lovely little extra bit on top when it comes to dealing with the water situation. So, by the way, this is a much nicer looking apartment than like anything else we have seen up to this yep. point. And she has water. <laughs> and just immediately. <laughs> yeah. She even has a pet. <laughs> uh, yeah, a pet for sure. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of where where that is at right now. Um, we've got some more stuff going on with uh, the water situation, which I'll, I'll queue up in a minute because it's it's you know water is is literally the the entire it's the lifeblood of series it's a, the lifeblood of everything going on in in uh the entire solar system frankly and and you see it in that you know that scene and then it, at the beginning when we started talking about like what life is like on series and they're doing the water rationing and that's potentially going to stir up some riots um one of the uh other, other things that you see is uh, we aren't going to talk too much about it, but like Miller is also tasked like his real job, not not the the kidnapping 
bonus job. But the real job is to actually investigate uh, some water thieves who are mm-hmm. out there stealing water from uh, the rest of the station. And the way that they're stealing it is in such a way that they've, they basically have tapped into the pipes um, and are, are, are pulling it out before it gets to the, uh, I guess it's the, 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 the communal green space, uh, which is really only accessible to the, the rich and wealthy on, uh, on series because they, they live in, uh, the, basically there's, there's, there is, as Squirrel pointed out, the Beverly Hills of series. Um, mm-hmm. which is the, the green central zone that the, the governor and other high-ranking officials and wealthy people live in. And one of, the, one of the grassy spots turned brown, so they were tasked with going out and figuring out what was going on with the water. So uh, part of that investigation goes uh, something like this. kind of get the point here what we've got is a a very robust underground economy that's also happening here on series even though earth corporations even though star helix a a private corporation is literally the law we're still seeing this underground economy at work and i was hoping uh logan you could speak a little bit to why this might have some impacts for the opa or why this might tie into how the opa generates its power in these environments well really it's that that underground economy is it, it's very similar to, I mean, the reason why people loved Pablo Escobar. You know, with his ill-gotten gains, what does he do? He gives a lot of it to the poor people who uh, never got any help from their government, have been exploited by corporations, and that's how the OPA has been building power, by taking resources from uh, the more moneyed interests and, and, you know, when you're taking water from a, th- a, a growing operation that is literally cosmetic, that grass has no purpose other than it looks pretty and the company likes it to look pretty. And I don't so- I, see. I, I, I'm offended because, like, I think this I think these lawns are key to the quality of life. And I think. That the the broken portholes <laughs> policing is very necessary to keeping law and order at play in series. Broken portholes, you <laughs> asshole. <laughs> but it's, it, it, it 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 breeds loyalty uh, among the uh, the lower class when they know that the water they're getting, you know, hush, hush under the table is coming from just something that is just purely cosmetic, a just a big fuck you to the people who need the water to survive. And and through that, it, it almost becomes a feedback loop because then you can use that as a recruitment tool. And now you can get more water in those ways and to get more resources. And through that, it starts snowballing and that's very very bad for the powers that be yeah exactly and it it also comes back in a a kind of interesting way where the the earth partner of millers is like well maybe they don't understand why the grass needs to be green and the kind of corporate um uh, official gives him a, a little cactus and is like here now you can have some greenery too kind of just as a a dickish fuck you um in a way to sort and of also be like no, no. The, the 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 plant that needs the least amount of water <laughs> a plant designed to exist or to survive without water in fact basically yeah but so 
so series, what we're seeing is these class stratifications are all coming to play as this very rich young woman is being sort of like sought by Josephus Miller. And uh, there may be some nefarious reasons why her father is trying to look for her, why they want this kidnap job to be successful. But let's let's cycle back out to the shuttle from the Canterbury because James Holden and crew, they're in some trouble out there. And then suddenly they they hear somebody's coming for them. But who's coming for them, Chris? And why might they not want to be found by the people coming for them? Uh, Mars is coming for them. Actually, the uh, the flagship of the Martian Navy is coming for them. Um, and the reason why they're a little bit concerned about this is that uh, they the transponder that they found is uh, has a, a serial number and and an identification on the transponder that identifies it as as technology belonging to the Mars Congressional Republic. Um, so. They think that they stumbled upon a pirate trap that for some reason was put in place by Mars, which they don't really connect those two things. And it's, I, I, I'm, I'm slightly offended by these spurious accusations that uh, the Mars Congressional Republic would have anything to do with setting up a, a, a bait ship uh, for a, a belter. Uh, well, it, technically, it's an Earth Corp uh, ice hauler. Yeah. Uh, to 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 lure them into a trap just so we could blow them up with with stealth technology. This is utterly absurd, and there's no reason why uh, Mars would ever stoop to such to such such lows. Uh, however, Mars does render aid when called upon to do so, and so this uh, transponder that they were able to rig together and, and power with all of the energy available to them uh, inside of their spaceship, which is an engineer I found thoroughly comical, uh, but I loved it anyway. Um, <laughs> They were able to then signal to the uh, the Donager, which is the, the Martian flagship. And the Donager, of course, being the good Martian sailors that they are, uh, goes out and is responding and is offering aid in a time of distress. And what does what what is it that Mars gets for all of this? They they are slandered and libeled in this grotesque manner where they are blamed for the destruction of the Canterbury, completely out of nowhere, there is no substantiating evidence for all of this. Entirely the fault of James Holden. He's making this shit up. It's just not fair. Yeah, because Earth and Mars are closer to war than they have been in a very long time. Yes. Like, these are two imperial hegemonic powers. There can only be one in the solar system. Earth and Mars both want to be ascendant, and it, it doesn't matter which one of them it doesn't matter to either one of them how many people get hurt in order to determine that that intersolar system hegemony. But the, the fate of the human race is going to be set by the conflict between these two powers, or at least that's how they see it. And so as we leave this episode, James Holden, uh, asshole earther that he is, does something probably ill-advised and sends out a message on a wide band to literally anyone, anyone with a with a, a a radio telescope will pick up this this transmission that he's sending, telling people what his suspicions are about Earth, about uh, Mars blowing up the Canterbury, about the Donager coming to finish the job, and about how if he is murdered, that'll be confirmation of Mars' ill intent towards the solar system, and a casus bellas, as it were. So, in the next couple of episodes, we're going to get in, uh, an inside look at what a Martian. Uh, uh, warship looks like. We're going to see more about Ceres. We're going to see more about uh, Josephus Miller's dives into the underbelly of Ceres, especially the OPA, the Outer, Outer Planets Alliance, and meet some of the big movers and shakers in this, this independence movement that is a threat to both Mars and Earth because they want to upset the balance of power. And we dive deeper into sort of the mystery of why the ship was abandoned out there and why somebody would even want to destroy the Canterbury, which is like you know, that's like blowing up a Walmart 18-wheeler. Like, why would you ever do that? Who would that ever piss off? And why would you ever even spend the missile on doing that? But clearly somebody has a plan. So I'm going to I'm gonna turn to you, Logan. I'm going to turn to you, Chris, after that. Uh, what are your wrap-up thoughts on this episode? What do we need to be oh. thinking about going into the next episode? We're, we're, before we get to the wrapping uh -oh. up, uh, we, we, we skipped, a, we skipped a, a portion of the show that we promised we would do. Oh, jeez, you're right. You're right. Well, you know what? Let's let's do wrap up thoughts, and then we'll then we'll do our fashion moment. <laughs> oh, okay. I got I gotta tell you, the the wardrobe department in the Expanse must have just the best job in the world because <laughs> there is 
almost no clothing that Shore cannot just kill immediately. You you could put her in a burlap sack and she'd somehow find a way to make it fashion. For sure. Um, but as far as closing thoughts go, like this, uh, you know, we're on the verge of something here. It's it's really unfortunate from a Martian perspective that, you know, all of this hullabaloo and fuss is being made about stuff that, you know, Mars really had nothing to do with. This, this is not uh, our, our uh, all, all we are doing, uh, frankly, is trying to help people survive out there who are going about the business of trying to bring water to Ceres and, you know, sustaining life and the, and the functioning economic uh, life support system uh, of all of the various outlying uh, colonies and uh, stations that exist within the solar system. And, you know, Mars is just trying to maintain order and keep all of that going. Um, and it, and it's, it's, it's truly disappointing to see this kind of slander uh, being heaped upon Mars and all of this blame for things that are far outside, you know, to have nothing to do with what it is that Mars is doing. Uh, and I'm really hoping that Mars is going to be able to clear that up in the next couple of episodes. And the OPA, <laughs> between the two of you, either you torture us or you're just so boring. <laughs> and I think it's very, very telling that in this second episode, you see the uh, the OPA courier that uh, Chris Jen was torturing now be in a tank. And oh, interesting. He'll actually have a conversation with you when not actively being tortured. But there was a there was a minor detail in that interrogation that I don't think should go unnoticed. And it was that all throughout the conversation and they're talking about water rationing and all of those problems all throughout that time. Christian is eating pistachios, one of the most water heavy crops that we have. And it yeah. is just just a very casual way of just constantly sticking it to us. Just that's the way the earthers are. That is way MCR is. And quite frankly, a plague upon both your houses. Yes, yes. <laughs> How did you know it was pistachios? I never caught that. Because uh, you, you, you can see that, that she's eating. You, you can see her yeah. eat pistachios. No, I, I, see, I see her eating yeah. something. I saw her throw something away, but I never I never, it was the, it was I never the connected the yeah. dots. Yeah, the shells. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Also, that is a yeah. massive fuck you. Holy oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, yeah. it's, she, it's she's pure manipulation. It yeah. <laughs> Look at all the nice stuff you can have if you just play nicely with Earth. If you just I mean, give me the information I need to go... <laughs> If you just need, give me the information I need to go to war with Mars and wipe them out once and for all. <laughs> and, you know, I will say, you know, in, in, in a kind of a huge turn of fuck you, this uh, particular intelligence asset uh, commits suicide by not allowing the uh, gravity-resistant drugs to be injected into his neck while being taken to Luna uh, to be held. Uh, he, also, and so, he, he also bends his head forward in such a way that it actually snaps his spinal column. Yeah. Uh, so it's a combination so, of a lack of the drugs and also just like yeah. breaks his belt. But and he, bones. he he then took the gravity that was being used to torture him and he used it to kill himself and stop himself from being used as an intelligence asset anymore. But uh, bring up that bring back that picture of Christian Avicerala. Oh, of course. So now so now here we are with one of the most powerful people on the planet Earth, someone who has never been elected to office and yet holds uh, almost unquestionable power within the government. Is she a villain? Is she a hero? Is fighting for Earth the most important thing? Find out the answer to all of these questions and more, not next episode, not the episode after that. We're gonna keep asking him all the way until the end of this fucking series because <laughs> a lot of these questions don't ever get answered adequately, which is exactly why we get to talk about it. Absolutely. But uh, Chris, Logan, thank you so much for joining me again on this Friday night. There's more night. outfits. There's another outfit. Oh my God! Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, oh, it's yeah. always good. Yeah, she's she's Just, always she's always an eleven out of ten on the fit scale. Absolutely. These these are no these notes. are <laughs> no no notes whatsoever. Like she's she's she is just. Every single outfit she wears, there's there's one in like season five where she's basically wearing giant chunks of glass as like her earrings and her necklace. And it's just like, who would have thought of this? It works so perfectly. It's just amazing. I, I, I truly, I, my my hat goes off to, or I, I, I doff my cap to uh, everyone who was involved in the wardrobe department uh, on this show. Although I will, will say that it's kind of annoying that every single dude 
uh, on Earth is like wearing a Mandarin collar, which is whatever. Yeah, ties are out. Of, ties are out of style. Not absolutely. So yes, but it's been fun. Thank you so much, uh, Squirrel, for for setting this up and making this all come together. Uh, we'll have more clips next week. We're figuring out all of these things. Technology has not necessarily been super cooperative, but we're getting there. Uh, we're we're gonna it's gonna be fun. We're gonna keep doing this. We've got like what. Uh, at this rate, we have something like, oh, what is it? So it's 10 episodes per season. So there's, <laughs> it's about 20, 25 to, you know, ish episodes of this podcast left. If we're going to be doing it two episodes per, per, two episodes per episode, as we seem to be uh, on track to do. I'm looking forward yeah. to it. It's going to be we'll a lot of fun. Out. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll see.